The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and every week I or my co-host, Dr. Scott, talk to you about the issues that doctors are talking about in doctor's lounges all across the United States. We try to educate you and keep you informed about healthcare matters so that you can advocate for yourself and for your family and stand up for what is necessary for your healthcare rights and freedom. The show is brought to you by the Doctor Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation stands for those principles, that of the doctor-patient relationship and healthcare freedom for all Americans. So it's very important that you support our uh, organization by going to our website at d the number four pcfoundation.org that's d for pcfoundation.org contribute help us stay alive and well so that we can be um, doing the work that we do every day especially on this radio show and uh, we we can't do this without you so please please uh Make your tax-deductible uh, contribution to our foundation and uh, and help us fight the health care battle. And I'll talk about that in just a few minutes, about fighting the health care battle. Um, but first, what I'd like to do is remind everybody about our upcoming event that Docs for Patient Care Foundation puts on every year. It's on direct primary care. It is in Orlando, Florida. It's coming up very soon, March 14th to 16th. I've seen the program. It is unbelievable. We are filling up our spots rapidly, and I don't want you to miss out if you are a physician who is uh, interested in getting out of insurance and getting into self-pay, um, the self-pay arena, uh, and working for your patients instead of the insurance company or the hospitals or a private equity firm. This is your opportunity to learn everything that you need to know, uh, about how to, uh, navigate this very, um, tricky but highly rewarding area in healthcare. We have a great keynote speaker, Dr. Marty McCary, who has been a guest on this show several times and is one of the leading experts on healthcare policy and will uh, be uh, available to sign his fantastic books, one of which I refer people to all the time. It's entitled The Price We Pay. And if you've not read that book, I highly commend it to you. It is uh, truly an eye-opener, and it really is a page-turner. So it would really behoove you to check out our website, look at what the program is uh, uh, consists of, and sign up. This is, this is uh, going to be the best meeting yet with 
practical sessions so that if you are a primary care doctor, you'll learn how to do joint injections, put in catheters, do all kinds of things that you need to do in your office that you might be a little uncomfortable with. So check it out. You know, on my way into uh, work today, I heard a interesting statistic. And you know that I talk about DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, quite often, and its harmful effects in healthcare. And why is it harmful? Because we are elevating people not based on what they know or what they've accomplished, but instead on the way that they look, the way that they appear, the way that they identify, to check the boxes. And I always have contended, and I uh, often say that the problem with DEI is that by promoting people in this fashion, we are doing them a disservice because we're putting them in a position where they are uh, apt to fail. And in healthcare, that will be an absolute disaster. And the real solution to having a representative healthcare community uh, in terms of the makeup from an ethnic standpoint is to have people achieve that based on meritocracy. And the best way to do that is through education, early education, and which, which is what really just, just blew me away when I heard this statistic today. In the state of Illinois, there are 33 schools where not one single student passed the math or reading proficiency exam. Just just grasp that thought for just a second. 33 schools, not a single student, not a one, can pass a math proficiency or a reading proficiency exam. They're illiterate. They're stupid. In the state of Illinois, there are 620 schools where just 10% of the students in those schools can pass a reading or math exam. There are over 6,000 schools in the state of Illinois. I'm sorry, there are over uh, 12,000 schools in the state of Illinois. And 600 of them, um, I'm sorry, that, that statistic is wrong. I think there, there are, there are uh, 3,000 public schools. 600 of them have only 10% literacy rates. That means 20% of the schools in the state of Illinois have students in there that can't read. 90% can't read. 90% can't do math. This is why DEI is so dangerous. They had a uh, uh, man on the street uh, this past week at Kennesaw State University in 
in uh, Georgia. And uh, they were asking uh, a bunch of questions. It had to do with um, uh, just general topics. And it came up that they needed to do a calculation, 15 times 4. And there were four of the students that were standing around. And they were struggling with it. One of them said, oh, 23. 23? I, I, that, that is just so ridiculous. But then one of the four was absolutely certain that they knew the answer, that she knew the answer and said, oh, it's 48. And she was, she was extremely confident and extremely sure about her answer. And the other three went along with that like sheep. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, 48. 48's the answer. These are college students. They cannot do basic math. This is a major problem. What is happening in the schools in this country? What is their job? Their job is to educate. In Illinois, 90% of the schools... I'm sorry, um... Uh, 20% of the schools have a literacy rate of just 10%. How are they able to continue to do what they're doing? If you had a hospital and the only job of the hospital is to make people well, and 90% of those people who came to the hospital died, you, you wouldn't have a hospital. Who would go to the hospital? And yet we have schools where 90% of the students come out of there unable to read and write. And the only, the only explanation for this, the only logical explanation for this, is that this is intentional. What does that mean? Well, this is very cynical and very dark, but this is what the left wants. They want a stupid, uneducated, illiterate population so that they will not be able to think for themselves and they will be able to go along with whatever the elites want them to do, whatever they want them to believe. We see this all the time right now with young people who get their news from TikTok and from Instagram. And whatever is on there, that's, you know, that's fact for them. And that's exactly what the left, what Marxists want people in this country to, 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 uh, to get to. They want them to, to, uh, to get to the point where they will be unable to question, be unable to think for themselves. And this is why DEI is so dangerous in healthcare. So the topic for my show today is do people really care about healthcare anymore? And I don't mean do, do people care about their health? Of course they do. And of course everybody wants the care that their family gets or that they get to be the best care. But what I mean is, do people really feel that this is a topic that is 
important anymore? Is it something that has had its time and come and gone? Or is this something that that people are just oblivious about? And I was reading an article, and you all the regular listeners know that I love um, perusing the healthcare news that's put out by the Heartland Institute to uh, get ideas for uh, the show and topics to talk about. There was an article in there that was entitled, Why Are Republicans Losing the Healthcare Debate? Now, back in 2008, when I became an activist, when I became interested in healthcare in general and the um, the impact that the government has on health care there were um, this was this was the topic of the day because of Barack Obama and Obamacare and in a recent survey that was done by a leftist organization, by the way, but nonetheless, it was a survey. Three out of five, or 60% of the people that were polled, viewed the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, favorably. And in that poll, more people trusted the Democrat Party on health care issues, and most of these people believe that the a Republican president would repeal Obamacare. Now, why is that important? Well, it's because the people in this country have grown complacent. And they view Obamacare as a good thing. And um, the... The fact of the matter is that the Republicans have abandoned this issue. In fact, the National Republican Congressional Committee for the past several election cycles has been telling Republican candidates for Congress not to even discuss health care, which is just mind-blowing to me. Back in 2008, it was the number one topic. 2010, 2012, 2016, the presidential um, race between Trump and Clinton. I don't know why Republicans believe that this is a third rail issue nowadays, but they've abandoned this for no good reason. They... um, they have abandoned this because the Republicans are inconsistent in their messaging about health care. And that's because they're all over the map. Now, by all over the map, I don't mean that they are divergent in what their goal is, which is to have limited government involvement in health care. But what they are talking about are a whole slew of ideas and those are very difficult to message and in a stump speech or in a sound bite it's impossible to get that message across and explain it and so the default position 
is to just not talk about it. Whereas the Democrats have it very easy. They say, we're going to give you free stuff. Obamacare is going to take care of you. You need to support this. And by the way, the Republicans want to take it away from you. And they are in lockstep with that message. They say it over and over and over again. And the more you say it, the more it resonates. And the more you say it, the more believable it becomes. It becomes a truism. And so this is the difficulty that the Republicans have with talking about health care. And they've got great ideas. In fact, this Republican-led Congress has passed a number of health care bills, one of which was led by Pete Sessions, who introduced the Health Care Fairness for All Act, which would create universal tax credits and individual health savings accounts with after-tax dollars for medical expenses that will remain invested and are tax-free and are portable so that if people leave a job, they can take it with them. It has not passed in the Senate, and it certainly would not get signed into law by a Democratic president who has no intention of giving more health care freedom to individuals. They want to take it away from individuals, and they want the government to control health care. And so this is really the the dilemma. The, the Republicans want to do things for individual freedom. They want to promote direct primary care, which you know very well is a major um, uh, issue that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation has supported since the infancy of direct primary care. And in doing so, this would give people an opportunity to choose their doctor, decide on what kind of health care that they need, and at a substantially lower price than the very expensive Obamacare, which costs an arm and a leg if you are not subsidized by the government. For a silver plan on Obamacare, an average family of four would wind up paying close to $34,000 a year for their health care. That is untenable. So the Republicans are unable to wrap their brains around these issues and, and message this in a consistent way to um, to take the wind out of the Democratic sails and refute what they are saying. Because at the end of the day, we know that whatever the Democrats say, whatever the left says, <coughs> that they attribute to the Republicans, to conservatives is actually just the opposite, and it is exactly what they want to do. So when they say that the Republicans want to take away your health care, 
and make it less convenient, less affordable, less accessible, it's actually them and their policies that are causing all of those things. But they are very good. They're very good marketers. Very, very, uh, they've got a complicit media that is their propaganda arm that will echo those positions. So my advice to the Republican candidates is to find a healthcare policy person, a doctor who knows about healthcare, about free markets, about the problems in healthcare, and bring them onto your staff as a consultant to help you create a message that will be concise, consistent, that will resonate and will reach people so that they can see the contrast about what has come about under uh, uh, let's see, at, at 12 out of the last 16 years of a progressive White House. And this is the choice that people have to make. It's, peop- it's up to people what they want because ultimately you get the government that you choose and that has serious repercussions. It does in healthcare. So, Having having read that article and digested things a bit, I started thinking about healthcare and about being a doctor today. When I got into this in two thousand and eight, things were very different than they are today in healthcare, and I think that it's more difficult being a doctor in 2024 than it was in 2008. And I think that the problems that we see in healthcare are far more complex. And the, um, when, when I started doing this back in 2008, I was thinking of the topics that we talked about, the things that really um, were being written about or spoken about on radio or on TV. And and I came up with a list of the things that I can remember were the hot topics in 2008. Now, of course, the big one was Obamacare. And, um, and that really sucked so much oxygen out of the room in any kind of healthcare debate. Books were written about it, articles every single day. I wrote a ton of articles about this. But there were other issues that that were um that were prominent back in 2008. We talked a lot about Medicare and Medicare insolvency and how there was no Medicare lockbox, but rather it was going to be a 
an entitlement that would run out of money. I don't know how it could ever run out of money since there's no lockbox, but ostensibly would run out of money, and they kept pushing this further and further out. But that was something we talked about a lot. We talked a lot about tort reform, how it was killing health care. And we tried to uh, get involved from docs for patient care in a tort reform effort that failed because of the very powerful um, uh, trial lawyers lobby. And it really went nowhere. We talked a lot about Medicaid expansion, how the uh, entitlements were killing our our uh, country, how more and more dollars were being spent on um, on patients who um, who didn't have any skin in the game, who didn't work, who were basically lifelong. Um, recipients of uh, a, a social health care um, safety net and how it was so expensive. The most expensive places for care were emergency rooms where Medicaid populations received the bulk of their health care. We talked a lot about insurance companies back in 2008 and how their um, their denials for services and their um, uh, labeling things as pre-existing conditions severely limited the accessibility that patients had to health care and that this was um, really um, hurting patients because they couldn't um, get the health care that they needed um, they wouldn't be able to um, see a doctor and, again, would have to rely on emergency rooms for their health care, which is the worst place to get taken care of. We talked about how high the taxes were to fund Obamacare back in 2008 and 2009, 2010, and um, how everybody's taxes were going up and uh there were they the government was in everybody's pocket to pay for this new entitlement we discussed back then electronic medical records how this was just coming into into vogue and the government was requiring electronic medical records so that we could have a better coordination between Doctors talking to each other and sharing information and being able to have a better healthcare system when, when things are reported electronically. That, that surely did not work. We talked about increasing the increasing regulatory state like HIPAA and other government mandated Programs to make physicians and hospitals comply with government regulations. Decreasing reimbursements to physicians was a big topic then, and and uh, as was scope of practice. Um, 
allowing uh, individuals who are not doctors to take care of patients and giving them the same um, uh, level of importance as physicians, elevating them to the same stature as doctors and and um, and uh, really um, promoting them as as equivalent. Abortion was a big topic back in 2008, and uh, how how uh, we were dealing with um, late term abortions and and uh, other issues. This was a, a divisive topic back in 2008. We talked about certificate of need a lot. How certain states were preventing competition by regulating the um, ability for physicians to uh, collaborate and work together or open up hospitals because the states that have certificate of need laws require approval by the state and uh, to, to open those facilities and and uh, in most cases, these were not granted because of the powerful hospitals in the um, areas that uh, that the these um, new facilities wanted to open in. So those were the things that we talked about a lot back in 2008. And as I went through that list, nothing's changed on that list. It has all those things have remained have remained as issues that are still plaguing healthcare. Every single one of them, not one of those issues that I've just gone through, has gotten any better for patients or doctors or hospitals, for that matter. But now there's a whole additional list of issues to tack on to that that make things far more complex. So what's so different today? What new things are on this list that have made being a doctor, being in healthcare so difficult? Well, first of all, we had a pandemic the government got more into our business. They got more intrusive into our lives in so many ways. And there's been tremendous fallout from that. We had, I, I, again, I, I'm not going to, um, to go through each of the issues that has been the result of the pandemic. But we all know about the mandate to get shots. You couldn't work in a hospital if you didn't get your shots. Even if you didn't believe in it, you had to get the shot, excuse me, the shots. In some places, you even had to get boosters. And we now know the problems with the shots, with boosters, their failure to prevent COVID, maybe it helped in 
some patients who were high risk patients, maybe it didn't. Maybe it accelerated their demise. We're finding out things right now that I can, uh, if I have time, I'll share with you toward the end of the show. But there's been fallout from shots that we don't even know the extent of this. There was censorship during the pandemic. People like me who questioned what the government was saying, what these, what these spokespeople who were supposed to represent the, the country from a public health standpoint who lied to us and told us things that we now know were blatantly false, that were lies, either intentionally or unintentionally. But anybody who questioned the the um, conventional wisdom of the powers that be, the government and the 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 people that the government empowered to be the spokespeople for them. If you questioned this, then you were an enemy of the state and you needed to be censured yourself. You needed to be um, vilified. You needed to maybe even lose your medical license or your ability to publish things on social media. It was it was really a very scary time. The what other problems have we seen arise in in the last sixteen years? Well, we have seen a loss of confidence in government health care agencies, in public health agencies, the CDC the NIH, the FDA. We know that they work in cahoots with the World Health Organization, which is clearly a Marxist-influenced agency that has absolutely no love for the United States, but yet our public health agencies are in lockstep with the WHO. And so what are our public health agencies actually doing for us these days? Do we even need them? And if we do, they need to have a major overhaul because in the current state of affairs, they are not helping, but they are harming us. Some of the things that we've seen come up as challenges and, and, uh, both from a good and a bad standpoint is telemedicine. The pandemic didn't create tele- telehealth, telemedicine, but it opened the floodgates to allow that to happen. Now that's a good thing in many ways because people who live in rural communities around the country and don't have ready access to good health care, now have the ability to get that care 
by telemedicine, telehealth. The problem is, who pays for it? During the pandemic, the insurance companies were treating a telehealth visit just like an in-office visit. Now that we're out of the pandemic, insurance companies are taking a harder stance on telehealth. Despite the benefit that has been demonstrated for this addition to our health care armamentarium. So this is a, a, a new challenge that we have in health care. Fentanyl. Nobody was talking about fentanyl in 2008. Today, it's a scourge. It is a it is the pandemic of of 2024, 2023, 2022, 2021, and it will be for years to come. And that's because we have open borders. It's coming across the border. It is a major problem when you have schools that have little boxes that instead of break in case of fire, they have a vial of Narcan in them that says break in case of fentanyl overdose. That's a problem. And I don't see us really taking this problem seriously. And this is something that will will be a devastating issue for years to come if we do not tackle this now. There's enough fentanyl in this country <clears throat> to kill every single person. And God forbid it gets into the water supply or it gets um, aerosolized because there are people coming across the border that we do not know who are here from countries that want to do us harm I I worry about this regularly another topic that we weren't talking about in 2008 which has jumped to the front of healthcare is transgender you know not a not a, a week goes by that there isn't an article or there isn't some issue involving transgender. I was watching a video um, of a, a college volleyball game in Toronto where there were not one, not two, not three, but five transgender Males on the women's volleyball team playing volleyball and the, the camera panned the sidelines and you see all these cute tall girls sitting on the sidelines in the, on the bench because they they can't compete with these dudes who are playing volleyball. We've got to do a better job in healthcare. Um, not not just uh, defining what this is about, what gender is about, but really wrapping our brains around the fact that children don't know what the hell they are 
and we cannot give in to the left that wants to help potentiate this chaos that we're seeing in our society. DEI in healthcare is another issue that we didn't talk about in 2008 because it didn't exist. It took it took uh, an additional 12 years of progressivism to ingrain this into our society and make this into an issue which is actually a divisive and racist issue in and of itself. And in healthcare, as you've heard me say, this has no role in healthcare because it will harm patients and it will put individuals who are put into these positions of um, authority through DEI in places where they are more likely to fail and and uh, put them at risk themselves. In 2008, we weren't talking about hospital consolidation like we are today. Yeah, hospitals were coming together and they were starting to form systems. Today, it is epidemic and it is detrimental to healthcare. You have these mega systems where they are buying up smaller hospitals and they are creating these huge behemoths that are not interested solely with healthcare because they have become businesses. And healthcare is becoming less accessible in these systems, which hire doctors and the doctors are um, are expected to turn out high volume of patients. Turnover is quick. Care is less personalized. And the um, ultimate care of the individuals is diminished. It's a bad thing as is the corporate practice of medicine, which has become just as prominent as hospital employment of physicians. There used to be a law that prohibited corporations from practicing medicine, but they've gotten around that by uh, various legal maneuvering, and now private equity firms and big corporations own large numbers of physicians and again when that occurs the goal is maximizing profits not taking care of patients the nursing shortage which has always been a little bit of an issue even back in 2008 is now a major crisis and hospitals can't hire nurses anymore and the pandemic was partly responsible for this because the hospitals did not support the nurses. And the reason is the business wasn't there. And so because they weren't doing elective surgeries and they were only admitting people to the hospital who were sick with COVID, they didn't need all the other services, all the other nurses that that took care of elective services. And they, instead of repurposing them, they furloughed them or let them go and that 
really created uh, a lot of um, antipathy, a lot of, uh, of hard feelings on the part of nurses to the institutions that did not support them, that, that let them go and left them hanging without health care themselves. So when the pandemic was over, the hospitals expected the nurses to come back, but they didn't. And why would they? Why would you go back to an employer that that threw you under the bus, that did not support you? And so instead of going back to these hospitals, they became travelers. Companies sprung up that were nursing agencies that were employment agencies that contracted with hospitals to help them fill those roles and they demanded in- incredibly high salaries high reimbursement to fill those roles and the nurses were making two three four times as much maybe more than they did as employed nurses by the hospitals so if you just do the math, you have a nurse who's making a fortune working on a two-month or three-month contract with an agency that puts her in a hospital, and she has no allegiance anymore to the hospital. Now the hospitals are stuck. They can't hire, and they've got to pay more. So they've shot themselves in the foot. And in the meantime, we've got a major nursing shortage. In 2008, medical training was was better than it is in 2024. We have dumbed down medical training. We've replaced critical courses in medical schools with courses on social subjects on on equity on on um, on diversity on um, talking about uh, uh, gender conformity or on uh, not not disgendering a person these are the subjects that they are teaching right now in medical schools and in post-medical school and residency and even beyond to keep your license going you've got to take courses to maintain your license in diversity equity inclusion in um uh, making sure that there is no gender discrimination or other other social aspects of society that that the left has deemed necessary to create uh, a more just society instead of focusing on healthcare issues. And this is permeating all the way up from medical school through residency training, even beyond. In addition to that, we're seeing residency programs cut down the number of years of training because they need to churn out doctors because there just aren't enough doctors in this country. So instead of having a urology residency, which I know very well, um, that it was six years when I trained, and then an additional training to do subspecialty training, they've cut down 
the training in urology to just five years, and they've eliminated certain skill sets that people needed to have, like general surgery skills. So it is really um, a, a problem because we are creating doctors who are less skilled than they were a generation ago. And I am very worried for myself and my family because of that. Prescription drugs are were a problem in 2008, but that's become a greater problem today, um, partly because of middlemen, partly because of drug shortages. The reason why that is is because much of our drugs don't get produced in the United States, but get produced by China, one of our adversaries. And or they are we the pharmaceutical companies have have uh, production facilities in countries outside the United States, and if there is a problem, a labor problem, or social problem in those countries, or a natural disaster in those countries, the the plants where these products that are necessary for our healthcare are shut down and the supply chain is disrupted. Or if there are things coming from other countries and it can't get through the the Suez Canal and the Red Sea because of of Houthi terrorists shutting down that shipping lane, there are there are shortages in the healthcare supply chain. So the 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 geopolitical, the global aspect of things, trying to become globalists, has actually hurt our country with regard to drugs and healthcare supplies. And not to mention the fact that now, because of the consolidation, insurance companies own the middlemen, the pharmacy benefit management companies, the PBMs, who own the retail pharmacy uh, chains, the CVS, and the Rite Aids. And so there is a collaboration of bad actors that are hurting the public with regard to their, their prescription drugs. So I've run down a list that is not, that is probably um, only a partial list of some of the strains on healthcare in 2024. And you add that on to what we talked about in 2008, and you can understand why the public is burnt out with regard to health care. And you can understand why the Republicans are losing the messaging battle. When you've got a population that is illiterate, that gets their news from TikTok and from Instagram or from MSNBC, 
and they're told Obamacare is the answer and the Democrats are going to give you all this free stuff and the Republicans want to take it away and make your health care more expensive, you could see where the problem is and why people would trust the Democrats more, even though they are the cause for 95% of the things that I've just run through. So this is this is uh, something that I, I think that people need to really um, think about and pay attention to when it comes time to choosing leadership every November um, because you get what you vote for. I got a few minutes and I wanted to cover uh, something that just kind of blew my mind. And this is very technical stuff. And I'm going to try to try to, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but dumb it down for me, not for you, but for me, because this, these articles are talking about some very, um, technical, um, immunologic stuff. But basically, the, there are two articles that appeared in the healthcare news that are side by side that are linked. And one is, how safe are the mRNA shots? And the second is, the Florida Surgeon General calls for a halt to COVID-19 shots. And what these articles are expressing is, is what is coming out now in very reliable scientific journals. Nature, nature is one of the most highly respected scientific journals. And they're raising an alarm about how much has been unknown about the mRNA uh, shots for COVID-19. And what they're talking about is that the material, the mRNA, that's, that's a genetic material, it can cause what's called frame shifting. So mRNA is responsible for making proteins. And so the proteins are, are, um, a, the mRNA is a template and it tells the body what proteins to make. Well, these shots can actually get incorporated into that mRNA in your body and shift the genetic sequence over just one nucleotide, which is basically the backbone of mRNA. And that happens up to one-third of the time, not one-third of every patient, but one-third of every cell in your body. And so that that frame shift happens regularly, and it's slipping a gear every so often. So the the simple way to explain this is that instead of making the intended spike protein, these tiny mistranslational slip-ups create other things, 
other kinds of proteins, new ones, and there's no way at all to predict what kind of protein it will create. It's what's called stochastic, which means completely random. The vaccine creates stochastic proteins one-third of the time. So in one-third of cells in your body, this there are trillions of mRNA packages in each shot that can get incorporated and cause this frame shifting. And it is happening regularly, and it is happening a lot. Now, these proteins that are being created may not cause any harm. And that's what the people who are making these vaccines, I use that in parentheses, contend. But we don't know that. We don't know that they're safe. Just because these people who have a stake in this financially for billions and billions of dollars say it's safe, doesn't make it so. And the public health officials, those who have let us down and misrepresented us, are in cahoots with these manufacturers. And they are not to be trusted. So we don't know whether or not these these rogue proteins are going to hurt people or not. Not only that, but there's one other thing that I wanted to share that I need to, that have been reported. And that is that there's some contamination in some of these shots. And so instead of these shots having just fragments, it can have double-stranded fragments, which is DNA. And the DNA can get incorporated into your cells into your genome and it can actually modify your cellular makeup and we again don't know what the side effects are of this we don't know if it's a danger but we certainly don't know if it's safe and these shots have been rolled out in an emergency fashion and because of that they are now viewed as mainstream. You see commercials all the time with people with a Band-Aid on their arms, celebrities. We don't know that they're safe, and the government is still pushing something that we don't know has any safety at all. We don't know if it's harmful, but we certainly don't know if it's safe. And this is a, a major problem. So we are reaching the end of the show. I wanted to once again... Tell everybody about the um, uh, upcoming meeting in Florida on March 14th to 16th. Uh, and uh, I want to have people go to the website at d4pcfoundation.org. Read about it. Sign up for it. You will not be sorry. You will be sorry if you miss this conference because it is one of a kind. So thank you for being with us today and come back next week into the doctor's lounge. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.